Well, good morning. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 10. We'll be reading chapter 10, verse 5 through 13. Romans 10, beginning in verse 5. This is God's Word. Paul writes, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is, to bring Christ down. Or, Who will descend into the abyss? That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with a heart one believes and is justified. And with a mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask him to help us as we study his word. Father, we thank you for the truth of the gospel. We thank you, Lord, that in your grace, you have drawn near to us. You have brought the word of faith, the word of promise, the word of Christ to us. You've done it through individuals. You've done it through sermons. You've done it through our own study of your word. However it might be, that the word of the gospel has come to us. Lord, we boast in you. We give you all the glory and the credit. Lord, we ask that you would come now, that you would take this word that is sharper than a two-edged sword and that you would pierce us. You would open up the eyes of those who are blind. Lord, that you would confirm those who see in the glory of your grace and that you would bring your son, Jesus Christ, glory upon glory. Thank you, Lord, for this morning, for this book, for this time we have to study your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Gentlemen, this is a football. You may be familiar with those words. They were not spoken, of course, by a YMCA flag football coach to five-year-olds, but rather uh, they were spoken by the legendary professional football coach Vince Lombardi to the men of his Green Bay Packers football team. It was uh, nearly 62 years ago, July 1961, when he spoke these words. It was the first day of training camp. Uh, the Packers had uh, finished the previous season by losing a lead in the fourth quarter and losing the game, the championship game, to the Philadelphia Eagles. And so as training camp began in July of 1961, uh, Lombardi decided to start from scratch, right? To start at the beginning, to start with the basics, the fundamentals. This is a football. Here's how you catch a football. Here's how you throw a football. Here's how you block. Here's how you tackle. Here's how you hold a football when you run with it. Here's page one of the playbook. 
Now, if you've ever played sports at you know, junior high, high school, maybe higher level, you have probably had a coach do this with you. Go back to the basics, back to the fundamentals. Maybe it was the beginning of the season. Maybe it was after a sloppy loss. Maybe it was because the coach just wanted to make sure that you didn't grow lazy, didn't grow careless, didn't grow forgetful of the fundamentals. We all know, don't we, that we have to review the fundamentals, whether in sports or in our, our line of work, whatever it might be. We have to review those fundamentals regularly because it is so easy to forget them or to take them for granted. Well, the same is true in the Christian life. And so this morning, I want you to see from our text the fundamentals, the basics of salvation. Now, if you've been with us the past month, you know that we've jumped back in to Romans uh, in the deep end of the pool, right? Romans chapter 9, a very difficult passage. We've been thinking about this very difficult doctrine of, of God's sovereign election of some unto salvation and not of others. But as we've seen, particularly over the last couple of weeks, Paul's belief in the sovereignty of God did not lead him to deny the responsibility of man. He affirms both the responsibility of, of all mankind to believe in Jesus Christ and to be saved, as well as the responsibility of the believer, of the Christian, to long for and to pray for and to preach the gospel for the salvation of those who have not yet believed in Jesus. Paul, in the matter of, of these chapters, chapter 9 and chapter 10 of Romans, it shows us that he believes that God has, has elected a people for himself. He has chosen a people for himself. But, but Paul does not know who the elect are. He does not know who it is that God has chosen for salvation. And so as we saw last week, back in chapter 10, verse 1, Paul desired and Paul prayed for his, his Jewish countrymen in particular, is the point of 10.1, but, but implied he, he prays for all mankind, Jew and Gentile, that they would be saved by God. And it's the fundamentals of that being saved that I want us to think about this morning because our, our text helps us to answer three very basic questions. First, what is salvation? Second, how can we be saved? And third, who can be saved? What is salvation? How can we be saved? And who can be saved. Whether you've been a Christian all your life, you, know, you, don't, you never remember a day when, there, when you didn't love the Lord Jesus, or, or whether you've just become a, a Christian, or whether you are here this morning and, and becoming a Christian is the last thing in the world you'd ever want to do. You need to hear the answer to these questions, and you need to remember the answers to these questions. So first, what is salvation? The Bible answers that question in a variety of ways. And, and in these verses that we've read, Romans 10, 5 to 13, Paul gives us three of the answers that the Bible gives to that question. Salvation, Paul says, is justification. Salvation is life. And salvation is no shame. No shame. Let's, let's see this in the text. First, salvation is justification. Look at verse 10 with me. In verse 10, we have an example of what we call parallelism. 
right? Saying the same thing in two different ways. It was a common feature of, of particularly the, the Old Testament, Hebrew writing. They would say two things that, that were really parallel. They were really saying the same thing in different ways. And so you see there in verse 10, Paul says, for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Now, if you go back to verse 9, you notice that believing with the heart, confessing with the mouth, these are two sides of the same coin of salvation. And so in verse 10, Paul is, is not speaking of two separate things, right, but of the same thing in two different ways. With the heart, one believes and is justified, and with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. So you see the parallelism there. Paul is saying that to be saved is to be justified. But what does justified mean? Well, to be justified means to be declared righteous before God, to be declared right with God, to, to, to be in a right relationship, right standing before the Holy One, the Creator, the owner of all things. Paul is also talking about justification, is he, back in verse 5 and 6, when he, he contrasts the righteousness that is based on the law with the righteousness based on faith. Now, we'll get into those two different ways here in a moment, but for now, just, just see that salvation means possessing righteousness, being acknowledged as righteous in God's sight. Now, what, what's the opposite of justification? Well, the opposite of justification is condemnation. Right? If you are not justified, you are condemned. If you're not declared righteous in God's sight, then you are declared unrighteous in God's sight. You are guilty in God's sight because of your sin. But if you are saved, you are justified. That is, there is no condemnation because of your sin. You are justified. But if you're not saved, then there is no justification for your sin. So, so you see, the first thing Paul wants to say is, is salvation is justification. It is being declared right with God, to being declared righteous by God. But, but secondly, Paul says, what is salvation? It is life. It is life. Look at verse 6. Paul notes that when, when Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, he says that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Now, we'll come back to the first part of that verse here in a bit. But notice the result, right? Living, life. If you have righteousness, if you are justified, if you have been saved, then you have life and you will have life. You will live forever. You will live eternally. Again, what's the opposite of life? It is death. If you have no righteousness, if you are condemned, if you are under God's judgment, right, then you are going to die physically, you will die eternally. You are like a prisoner on death row in parchment, right? The death sentence hangs over you and only death awaits you for all eternity. So here, Paul is saying that salvation is justification and salvation is life. It means life. If you are saved, you have life. But finally, the third way that Paul describes salvation here is in verse 11. No shame, no shame. He quotes from Isaiah 28, 16 again, just like he did back in chapter nine, verse 33. And he says, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Right? 
So again, let's sort of kind of do the math of these verses. If in verse 10, believing leads to justification, which is another way of saying salvation, right? And here, believing leads to not being ashamed, then not being ashamed is another way of saying salvation, right? Isaiah and Paul, when they say that, that, that we will not be ashamed, they are speaking of being unashamed primarily before God on the last day, right? When we stand before his judgment seat to give an account of our life, we will not be ashamed because we will be vindicated in this holy presence. On that last day, when you stand to give an account for all that you have done and said and thought, how will you stand before him? Will you stand before him with shame, with humiliation, with terror? Well, yes, you will if you are not saved. But if you are saved, then you will have no shame. He will not be ashamed of you. And you will glory in his grace. So here is how Paul speaks of salvation. It's justification. It's life. It's no shame. If you're not saved, then there is for you only condemnation, death, and abject humiliation and shame, both now and for eternity. We must see that we're not like a video game, right? Where you have multiple lives. We are living the life that we are living now. We have one opportunity, one chance to live this life, one chance to get this question of salvation right. And the stakes are as high as they could possibly be. Life and death, justification and condemnation, shame and no shame. And if you are not saved, what you must see from this text is that the reason that that these things, justification, life and, and shamelessness in the best sense of that word, the reason that these things are not yours, the reason that condemnation, death, and shame are yours is because of your failure to do God's commandments and because of your failure to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Which brings us to the second question. How can we be saved? If this is what salvation is, then how can we be saved? In this text, Paul is continuing to contrast the two ways of salvation that he spoke of back in chapter 9, verse 30 and 31, the two paths of justification and life and and no shame. There is, on the one hand, the righteousness based on the law, in which you seek, like the Jews of old, to establish your own righteousness. You, You clothe yourself like Adam and Eve in the garden with fig leaves that are decaying, that are are rotting away. Whereas the righteousness based on faith, the righteousness based on trust in the Lord Jesus Christ is, is being clothed with the righteousness of God. Rather than clothing yourself, you are clothed by God with a righteousness given to all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Two paths. Two ways, and yet only one of these paths actually leads to salvation, to justification, to life, and to no shame. Is it the path of righteousness based on law? Well, that's a hard no. Look at what Paul says in verse 5. He quotes from Leviticus chapter 18, the person who does the commandments shall live by them. If you go down this path, Paul is saying, that, that you want to be justified and have righteousness by the law, 
The only way to be saved, the only way to be justified, the only way to gain life, the only way to have no shame is to do the commandments and to do them perfectly. It's not enough right, to be a pretty good person. It's not enough to try really hard to keep God's law. If, if, if someone were to ask you why on the last day will God let you into heaven? And you say, well, I've, I've been a pretty good person. I've tried really hard. If that's your answer, it's clear you've never seen or you have forgotten, right, The Empire Strikes Back, the second or fifth Star Wars movie. You've forgotten that scene and when Luke is training with Yoda on Dagobah and, and he says, okay, I'll try to do what you're saying, Master Yoda. And Yoda says what? He says, try not. Do or do not, there is no try. Right? That's Yoda echoing Paul in Romans chapter 10, right? And you laugh, but you know it's true because what Paul is saying is what Yoda was saying. There is no try. You either do it or you don't do it. That's what the law of God says. It's not about doing your best, trying really hard. You either succeed and you get life or you fail and you get death. There is no other option. There's no option of just trying really hard. Now, I've been getting back into baseball. It's baseball season. Isn't it amazing? Baseball players can try and try and fail and still get paid millions, right? <laughs> Shohei Otani, right, the, the best baseball player in the world right now, he, he bats 267. Aaron Judge bats, you know, 284. Mike Trout bats 303. And these are the best players in the world. They are all-stars. They will be in the Hall of Fame. And yet, when they come up to bat out of every 10 times, they only get a hit three. Think about that. But what Paul is saying here in verse 5 is that if you think that your major league level of accomplishment, three out of 10, is going to make it, is going to cut it, before the holy law of God, you are deadly mistaken. The law demands perfection. It is the one who does the commandments who will live by them. You cannot, by your trying, by your all-star level, you know, obeying, you cannot win the approval of God. You cannot ward off the judgment of God. You must bat a thousand. Imagine if a batter had to get up to bat. And every time he knew that his life hung on that at bat, that if he did not get a hit, he would die. Paul is saying that that's the way it is with the law of God. That's the way it is of, of, of seeking to be justified, to have righteousness based on the law. It is the one who does the commandments who will live by them. But because of our sinfulness, we never can do the commandments. We never will do the commandments. And so therefore, there is no hope of salvation by pursuing righteousness based on the law. Have you ever put a destination into Google Maps and Google Maps gives you a route, right? It gives you a path. But in the middle of that path, what Google Maps doesn't realize is that some road is out, Right? And it's like you have to, to go through this road in order to get to your destination. But Google Maps right, didn't realize that that road was out. And so you're stuck. And so, of course, you hear you're not recalculating. My wife had a situation once where 
we were, were going to a, a park in Tennessee, and, and in order to get to this park, you, you either sort of had to go around a river or you had to, to cross over a river like directly to get to the park. Well, she didn't realize, or Google Maps didn't realize, that, that this bridge was out. Right? This bridge would not get you to the park. You did have to go sort of around to get to the park. Well, imagine that, that you put into your Google Maps this destination where a, a bridge is out, and, and yet it's at night, say, and there's no warning sign. It's just a cliff. What Paul is saying is that that's what it's like to, to seek to pursue righteousness and justification based on the law. It, this is a, a path that ordinarily, normally will get you to your destination. But the bridge is out because of your sin. And so here you are driving you know, 60 miles an hour down the road, careening over the edge of the cliff. Because of your sin, this destination, this path, you follow it, Paul is saying, only to your death. So that's the first way of being saved. And it's a way that does not lead to salvation. So what is Paul's point? There's only one path. There's only one path to salvation for sinners who don't bat a thousand. And that is the righteousness based on faith in Jesus Christ. In this passage, we have some of the most simple, some of the most poignant, some of the most beautiful and succinct words presenting the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ in all the Bible. How can a sinner be saved? How can a sinner receive the righteousness that God graciously grants? Look at what Paul says in verse nine. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, as I said earlier, confessing with the mouth, believing with the heart, these are just two sides of the same coin. They, they must and they will always go together in those who are saved. Right? It's very possible to, to utter the words, Jesus is the Lord, but to have no true faith and trust in your heart that God actually raised him from the dead. No true faith that would lead you to submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ in all things. Paul is not here saying that, that a mere verbal profession, a mere verbal utterance is sufficient for salvation. No, mere assent is, is never sufficient for salvation. There must be an abiding faith, a, a true faith in the heart, in the very core of who we are. This faith in Jesus is a faith that has a content. Right? We believe that something. In this case, Paul is saying we believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. This faith responds to the, the preaching of the word, the preaching of the gospel that Jesus died on the cross and, and to save his people from their sins and rose from the dead to accomplish the righteousness his people need. Faith believes this. Faith acknowledges that Jesus is Lord and Savior and rests on him alone for salvation. Faith looks outside of itself and calls upon the name of the Lord for help. Faith, as Paul tells us here, evidences itself, yes, by a verbal confession and profession of faith that Jesus is the Lord God Almighty, to whom we must bow the knee above all other lords. Now, yes, we wanna be careful here. We know that God is able to save even those who cannot be called outwardly, who cannot make a verbal confession of faith, right? Someone who is nonverbal can still be saved by the grace of God. Someone uh, who is unable mentally to come to saving faith. 
Right? God can save infants. God can save those in, in different disabilities. That's not what Paul's talking about here. Paul is talking about the ordinary situation in which someone is able to be called by the gospel, to be called outwardly by the word of God. Belief and confession of faith will always go together. And when they go together, you will be saved. This is the hope of the gospel. Our confession of faith verifying, confirming like a two-factor authentication that what is in my heart is reality. It is genuine. It is true. I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. I trust in him alone for my salvation. And what Paul is saying here is that genuine saving faith, calling on the name of the Lord, believing in your heart, confessing with your mouth, that if you do these things, if you look outside of yourself, you will be saved. You will have justification. You will have righteousness. You will have life. And you will have no shame on the last day. Faith in the person, the work of Jesus, not obedience to the law, not your works. Faith results in salvation. So we come to the last question. Who can be saved? If that is the only way of salvation, believing in Jesus, then who can be saved? Well, Paul's answer is clear. Anyone and everyone who trusts in Jesus alone for salvation. In verses 11 and 13, Paul again quotes from the Old Testament to ground his teaching in the Hebrew scriptures. And he's driving home that point that he makes in verse 12. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call upon him. Verse 11, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Verse 13, everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus is able, Jesus is willing to save anyone and everyone who calls upon his name. No one is too sinful to be justified by faith, to be declared right by God by faith. No one is too far from God to be brought back to God, to be reconciled to God through Jesus's death and resurrection. Just like Paul said in chapter three, that there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, Paul says here in Romans chapter 10, there is no distinction, whether you're a Jew or whether you're a Gentile. There is no distinction. What did Peter learn in Acts chapter 10? God does not show partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Anyone and everyone who trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. Whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, whether you're a religious sinner or an irreligious sinner, whether you're cultured or uncultured, whether you're rich or poor, old or young, male or female, red or yellow, black or white, doesn't matter who you are, what your background is, Paul is saying, if you call on the Lord Jesus Christ, if you trust in him, if you believe in him, you will be saved. You will have justification. You will have life. You will have no shame. All stand in need of salvation and all are welcome to come to Jesus and to be saved. And, and contrary to the impossibility of achieving righteousness by works, the righteousness based on faith is actually available. It's accessible to all who hear and believe. The, the verses six through eight are, are difficult verses. I'll be honest, I, I don't understand exactly how Paul is using and, and quoting Deuteronomy chapter 30, which is the text that he's quoting from there. But what does seem clear 
is that Paul is, is using it to make the same point that Moses was making in the old covenant about the law of God, the word of God. He's saying that, that this word of God is not something you have to ascend into heaven to find or descend into the depths of the sea to find. You don't have to do anything superhuman to search out Jesus. Why? Because Jesus has come to earth. Right? You, you, you don't have to, to go up into heaven to find him. He's already come down to earth. You don't have to go into the, the, the abyss, the grave, to find Jesus. He's already risen from the dead. He has revealed himself to us. He has drawn near to us, Paul is saying. He's drawn near to you in the preaching of the word, in the word of faith. That is the word that, that is spoken so that you might believe and respond in faith and receive Christ in faith. So many will deny the incarnation, Jesus becoming a man in order that he might die on the cross as a human for other humans. So many will deny the resurrection, that Jesus who died three days later rose again from the dead, that he will never die again. Unbelief scoffs at these things. But Paul here is saying that because of the incarnation, because of the resurrection after the death, the word of the gospel that's proclaimed and preached is accessible, it's available, it's here now for us. God has come to earth and his son to make us sons and daughters of God a dead man has come back to life, never to die again, so that we who trust in him will never die again. Anyone and everyone can call on Jesus and be saved from God's wrath, from God's just anger against our sin. This is the who can be saved. Do you remember the bad old days when you had to find a payphone to make a phone call to someone when you were traveling? And then all of a sudden, what happened? The cell phone companies brought their signals to us. They drew near, right? And they said, anywhere you are, you can make phone calls, whoever you are. Now, of course, the illustration breaks down because there are still dead zones and you have to pay for your cell phone, all those sorts of things. But you see the point of the illustration that the gospel, even better than cell phones, and yet in the same way that, that, that these companies have made these signals available to us, we don't have to search and look for a payphone. It's there always, whenever, whoever. Paul is saying the same thing about the gospel. He's saying, you don't have to work for this. You don't have to accomplish something for God. God has accomplished it for you. He has come near to you. Whoever calls on the Lord Jesus Christ, he will be saved. She will be saved. God has graciously brought his salvation near in Jesus Christ. So these are the fundamentals, aren't they? These are the basics. What is salvation? It's justification. It's life. It's eternal shamelessness. How are we saved? Not by the works of the law, but by genuine faith in the heart that confesses his lordship among men. Who can be saved? Anyone and everyone who calls in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, of course, the question that this text confronts us with is, have you been saved? And if the answer that you know is no, then Paul would say to you, you only have two options. You only have two options. You can keep on trying to obey God's law perfectly, but if you fail and you will, and if you refuse to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you are in an utterly hopeless situation, utterly hopeless. On the last day, 
When you stand before the holy God, you will be condemned. You will die. You will be put to shame. So our prayer, like Paul's in Romans 10 verse 1, is that you would be driven to despair of your own goodness, of your own righteousness, that you would fling yourself on the person and the work of Jesus Christ, that you would believe this good news of what God has accomplished for sinners through his son, to reconcile sinners to himself, to justify the ungodly, to make children of wrath, children of Satan, to be adopted sons and daughters. Come to Christ, call on him. We plead with you as Paul pleads with you. But if you have been saved this morning, then this is the message. And not only that you need to preach to yourself each and every day, that you need to remember and call to mind for your own good, for your own growth. This is the message that you believer, you Christian are called to take into the world, to your neighbor, to your coworker, to your friend, to your family member. Paul wants us to take this gospel that has come down from God to us, that is accessible, that is available, that is for anyone and everyone who might call on Jesus. He wants us to bring it to the world. He wants us to go forth and bring God's word to the lost and bring the lost to God in prayer. This is the gospel of our salvation. May God enable us to believe it, to grow in it, to grow in our understanding and our knowledge of it, and to make it known to all who do not know it. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for passages like this that, that set forth in such simplicity the glorious good news that if we call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, if we believe in him, if we confess him with our mouth, that he is Lord, that you've raised him from the dead, that he is savior. Lord, you tell us, you promise us, you assure us that we will be saved. Oh Lord, I ask that you would do a mighty work even in this room this morning. You know the hearts of those that have been born again, who have been regenerated, who've been given new life, Lord, would you do the mighty work? Would you grant faith? Would you grant light in the darkness and sight to the blind? Would you grant softness to the hard and to the rebellious and stubborn? And Father, we pray that, that you would glorify yourself and that you would call your elect to yourself powerfully and sovereignly. Father, thank you for giving us this time to spend on your day and your word. Lord, would these things that we have heard would they linger with us? Lord, would they fill our hearts and our minds? May we rest our souls in them and refresh our hearts this day. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.